So I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever been wrong? Nobody? I mean, like, really wrong. It's time to be honest here. I know some of you have your spouses next to you. Uh, Don't worry, they're already well aware that you're wrong. Uh, In fact, I can promise you that they're keenly aware of how wrong you are and have been. But in case you're struggling, I'll give you a few examples. In June of 1812, the French military leader Napoleon boasted that he could march into and conquer Russia in 20 days. Six months later, he had lost 500,000 men and was embarrassingly being escorted back to the French border by Russian soldiers. He was very wrong. In 1986, TV personality Geraldo Rivera hosted a much-hyped broadcast event during which a hidden vault belonging to famed gangster Al Capone would be revealed. After much build-up and commercial breaks, the vault was opened and revealed little more than a few bits of random debris in a bottle that could have potentially contained moonshine. In 2007, the future executive pastor at Pathway Church had forgotten to buy his wife a birthday present. So on his way home from church with his wife in the car, he stops at Walgreens. And he buys an item from the as-seen-on-TV section, stows it in the back of the car, and gives it to her when they get home five minutes later. He thought all that seemed like a good idea. He couldn't have been more wrong. Sometimes we have points in our life where we can look back and laugh at how wrong we were, even if our wives don't think it's very funny, no matter how many years have passed. But sometimes those moments are the moments that change everything. There are moments when our lives take a dramatic shift from one way to another. There are moments when we begin to see the world differently than we ever have before. This week, we're going to study one of those moments in the life of a man named Saul. But first, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today as, as your people gathered in your name. I pray, Lord, that we'd hear from you. I pray, Lord, anything that is in our minds and on our hearts that is blocking being able to hear from you, that you would just vanquish. And that we'd be prepared to listen to your word and apply it to our lives in a way that brings you glory and us joy. I thank you again, and I love you. Amen. So, before we get to the scripture in Acts 9, let's learn a little bit about Saul. Saul was born in a town called Tarsus, likely around or a little after Jesus was born. So he's a relatively young guy in this section of scripture that we're talking about. Saul moved with his family to Jerusalem when he was young so that he could study under a rabbi named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a very well-known and influential rabbi or teacher of that time. If you remember, it was this same man, Gamaliel, who tried to dissuade the Sanhedrin from persecuting John and Peter when they were caught preaching about Jesus in the temple. And his, his advice is very important, so I want to remember it here. This is related in Acts 5.38, and he says, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. It was good advice, and the Sanhedrin followed it, but not without beating John and Peter first. Saul had a Jewish heritage. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Like his father before him, Saul became a Hebrew-speaking Pharisee and a tent maker by trade. He was also born a Roman citizen and fluent 
in Greek language and culture. So, so far, he sounds like a pretty interesting, committed, well-rounded guy. Perhaps that generation's Tom Hanks. But look at the first sentence in Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Well, that doesn't sound like Tom Hanks. We know from other places in Scripture, often from Saul's own admission, that he was instrumental in the persecution of the early church. Acts 7 tells us that a man named Stephen was stoned to death without trial, without Roman approval. Saul stood by and watched, symbolically guarding the garments of those that were stoning Stephen as if to say, I'll vouch for this to Rome. Proceed. In Acts 26, Saul's recorded telling King Agrippa that I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my votes against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Stories from Acts chapters 8 and 22 shows us us that Saul invaded homes and synagogues, imprisoning and scourging both men and women. In a letter to the church of Galatia, written by Saul, again, he himself states, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. The question is why? What's with the murder and the persecution? Aren't we to understand that Saul the Pharisee worshipped God? He was high up in the hierarchies of Judaism. Why is he persecuting the church of God? The short answer is that Saul acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Again, in his own words in 1 Timothy 1. As we learned earlier, Saul was a Pharisee. Pharisees, based upon the reading of Old Testament scripture and prophecy, believed that there would be a returning Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would come to rule over the Jewish nation, would be a man from the line of King David, and would not be a friend of Gentiles or sinners because the Jews and the Jews alone were God's chosen people. This Messiah would establish an earthly kingdom, freeing them from all oppressors, which at the time of Jesus was Rome. The Pharisees also believed that the condition of a person's heart towards God was irrelevant. Strict adherence to the laws given by God through Moses was everything. In order to make it near impossible to violate one of these laws, the Pharisees added many additional traditions and customs as a buffer, but treated them as if they were also decreed by God. So, understanding what a Pharisee believes, take a look at Jesus through their eyes. Jesus is constantly ignoring their additional traditions and customs without violating the laws of Moses. Jesus and his guys aren't washing their hands like the priests want. He was healing people on the Sabbath, and he mixed freely with sinners. Jesus was also very critical of the Pharisees, who had made the Jewish people slaves to the law and the additional traditions and customs, and stripped it of all of its grace. A man that was critical of the keepers of the laws of God's chosen people couldn't be the Messiah. A man that seemed to have no intention of establishing an earthly kingdom that liberated the Jews from Rome couldn't be the Messiah. A man that was claiming to forgive sins, something that only God could do, that's blasphemy. It's punishable by death. That man could not be the Messiah. A devout Pharisee who saw a man posing as the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God, leading people away from what you believe to be the truth of God, that's where Saul's mind is at when he's persecuting the early church. Acts 9 continues. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I had a Bible I bought at a book sale once that was called The Way. Anybody had one of those? So I kind of like this one uh, because it it doesn't have a lot of commentary. Like, it's just just text, and it was pretty cool. Uh, But there's black and white pictures of hippies, like every six or seven pages. Uh, And I got distracting, so I eventually had to get rid of it. Uh, There's one up at the ministry center, if anyone's real interested. Hang it on the bookshelf. Um, Up to this point, the evidence would seem to lead us to believe that Saul was working under his own authority, randomly leading single man or mob crusades to squash the growing church of Christ that he refers to as the way. But now he has letters from people of authority. He is bona fide, and he's sanctioned by the high priest of the temple of Jerusalem. The situation with Saul here is a little interesting in that Damascus is under Roman rule. The high priest in Jerusalem had no authority to request extradition of anyone from a Roman city. However, this is the same group of folks that convinced a Roman government to crucify Jesus because they painted him as an insurrectionist and an enemy of Rome. It may not take much to convince King Eratus that he doesn't want any of that kind of trouble from the remnant of Jesus' followers in his area and to let the Jews, namely Saul, handle it. Now, do the letters work to that synagogue of Damascus? Well, as far as we know, they never made it there. That's because the Jesus-persecuting, Christian-hating, rage-filled Saul that was carrying those letters never made it there either. So Saul travels onwards to Damascus from Jerusalem, and we pick up the narrative in Acts 9.3. Now, as he went on his way, this is Saul, he approached a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now I want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes for just a minute. You're in the Middle East, in a desert country, in the middle of the day. You've been traveling a long ways. You're very near your destination, coming up on a chance to get some rest. And all of a sudden, you are blinded by a light that Saul describes later as being brighter than the sun. It's overwhelming. You ever go see a a matinee movie, and you come out at like 3 in the afternoon, and you feel like you're being assaulted by the light, like your head turns away and your eyes are shut? You almost have to hide from it. The light that Saul is talking about is brighter than that. The light is so forceful that it knocks the whole group of guys down. And Saul is now on the ground, eyes closed, bright, oppressive light enveloping his face. And then he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's an interesting question. Saul's been persecuting a lot of people up to that point. Stephen certainly comes to mind. But could Stephen be behind the bright light? Could dead and gone Stephen be this voice thundering from the heavens? How about the likely hundreds of others that scattered amid the persecution in Jerusalem? Could it be them? Saul has to find out. As his companions scramble to their feet, Saul remains on the ground. Who are you, Lord? Now, the word for Lord here could actually be a, a wide array of meanings. It could be something as simple as sir, or something as lofty as a reference to a king or a deity. 
Your Bible likely has the word capitalized, however, because they know the subsequent answer. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Those words had to thunder down from the heavens onto Saul. There is likely nothing that could have horrified Saul at that moment more than those words. And it makes you wonder, what's going through his mind right then? Amid a rush of emotions from fear to wonder to incomprehension. It can't be. It just can't be. This Jesus was a fraud. He was a liar. He was a blasphemer. It makes you wonder if at that moment the face of Stephen, glowing as he looked towards heaven while he was being stoned to death by a mob, popped into the mind of Saul. It makes you wonder if Saul was at the temple that day when his teacher Gamaliel was advising the Sanhedrin about what to do with Peter and John. It makes you wonder if sometime in that moment the wise words of Gamaliel jumped into the mind of the Pharisee Saul, persecutor, murderer of the followers of Jesus. If this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. You might even be found opposing God. And that is exactly where Saul has found himself. And in that moment, he knew it. You see, in that moment, Saul gets it. If this Jesus really is who he claimed to be, it changes everything. If this Jesus really is who he claimed to be, Saul has been working against God. Saul has been fighting to silence those who would spread the good news of the gospel. Saul has been fighting to silence those who would preach Christ crucified as the redemption that it is. Saul committed his gifts, his talents, his time, his zeal, and his life to the wrong thing. Jesus changes everything. For those of you that are here today that don't love Jesus, I want you to consider the position that Saul is in. Saul, the same as any unbeliever, denied that Jesus was who he said he was. Saul, the same as any unbeliever, even today, would call Jesus a liar, a fraud, or a myth. Saul was convinced enough to actively persecute to the point of murder those that followed Jesus. And in the end... Saul gets a gift, one that allows him to realize that his life is in opposition to God. A gift that through this story, you also get to receive. You get the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of all nations, the way, the truth, the life, the one true King, the conqueror of Satan, sin, and death, and the one who is all that he says he is. And that changes everything. Now, some of you are thinking right now, yeah, I get it. I get it. Jesus changes everything. But the truth is that he hasn't. You consider yourself a follower of Christ. You look at your life and the things that go on in your mind or the doubts that you have, and you think to yourself, I'm not sure Jesus actually changes everything. That perhaps he hasn't changed everything for you. For those of you that are thinking that, Let me give you three things, some perspective, some assurance, and a warning. For perspective, let me remind you of how things are. 
The truth is, is that there is something, likely a myriad of things in each of our lives that separates us from God. We call that sin. And God cannot tolerate sin. All sin is an offense against God and deserves punishment. Now, some people get upset at that. How can God be so pompous? How can I worship a God with such unreasonable expectations? My question to you would be, how could you worship anything else? Why on earth would you consider putting your trust for provision, strength, hope, and eternity in anything else than a perfect being? A God who has a standard that is less than perfection can't be a God at all. And a God who isn't the arbiter of what is good and what is not cannot be a God at all. And a God who doesn't ultimately bring justice to the wicked, who is passive and weak and allows his son and his people and his name to be trampled on is not a God at all. If this is a thought that you've had, I want you to take a close look at the consequences of the God that you are creating in your own mind, the one that you think is more fair and that you would prefer to serve. You'll eventually come to the conclusion that that's that's not a God at all. The state of mankind is that God is perfect and we are not. And that means that through your sin, you are eternally separated from God. And since you are not a God yourself, that also means that you are without hope. And your eternity is destined to be without God. But Jesus changes everything. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's the appropriate punishment. God is the giver of life. Your opposition to him results in death. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. You... You understand the cross? I mean, really understand it? It's not a religious symbol. It's not a lucky charm. God doesn't live in it or bless it or whatever else you think goes on in there. You live an imperfect life that is ultimately sinful and in opposition to God. Jesus lived a perfect life that brought glory and honor to God. You deserve death. Jesus embodies everything that true life really is. You and I are guilty. Jesus is innocent. And yet it was Jesus who was treated like a criminal, humiliated and brutally beaten. It was Jesus who voluntarily carried the cross up the mountain, was nailed by his hands and feet to it, and who hung there until his lungs collapsed. It was Jesus who died when it should have been you. And God accepted his death in place of yours. God's requirement for justice for sin was fulfilled because Jesus took the punishment on our behalf. And because of what was done on the cross for you, all has been forgiven. Better than forgiven. Because is this is if that sin never happened. And that changes everything. So for perspective, when you look at your life, and it isn't what you want it to be, I want you to remember that change, that gift from God to have your slate wiped clean and your opposition to him forgotten is irrelevant to whether you are in love with your life or your life circumstances. It's irrelevant to whether you feel like you've been successful or made the most of your opportunities or whether you've let people down. What you feel is not a good measure of what is true. Jesus changes everything, and that's true whether you feel it or not. Now some assurance. You will not live a perfect life. Even when you've believed that Jesus died for your sins, Even when you've repented, changed allegiances, and tried to live for God instead of yourself, 
Even when you follow through with Jesus' command for baptism, even after that, you will still sin. The process of sanctification, which is becoming more and more like Christ, is a lifelong process that will not be complete until Jesus returns and erases all sin from the world. But evidence of sin or shortcomings in your life is not evidence that Jesus doesn't change everything. At the time you first believed and repented, was the power of the cross enough to pay the burden of your sin? Of course it was. Is it powerful enough to sustain you, to continue to do so? Of course. I can assure you that despite your shortcomings, Jesus changes everything, even in your life, even right now as you sit. He is bigger than your doubt. He is bigger than whatever compelling argument is being made that is causing you to doubt. The sanctification is a process. The more you serve your interests, prioritize your glory, and hold back parts of your life from him, the more frustrating your life will be. Because you will know of the love of Christ, and you know of the possibility of what your life could look like, but you will experience very little of it. The more you pursue Christ, however, fill your head with his words and give yourself over to his work in your life, the easier it will be, and the more fruit it will bear, and the more joy you will have. Joy, because we are designed to serve the king. Said I give you perspective and then assurance. And now the warning. What you believe matters. Saul knew at the moment he heard the voice of Jesus call out to him in the desert that his life would be changed forever because what he believes has changed. There is no disconnect. The natural consequence to finding out that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God is to do a complete 180. It is simply incompatible for Saul to now believe what he believes and continue living the life that he was living before. But this is something that we struggle with here in our intellectual culture. It could be a post-enlightenment thing, a post-modernism thing, or it could be simple hubris. But our culture, with a healthy number of Christians included, seems to be able to agree with an idea without having any particular consequence on what they do or even the other things that they think. For example, Jesus is clear in saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Yet there are people who would claim to believe that, who can also say things like, all religions are the same. We all believe in the same God. Do you realize how dangerous that is? By keeping shallow, conversational peace in this world, you've declared war on those same people in the next. Those two things are not compatible. I can hear Christians say things like, well, Jesus is Lord, and then live a life that is almost exclusively about serving themselves. Those two things are not compatible. You and Jesus cannot be Lord at the same time. Jesus is not concerned about your intellectual agreement or your head nod that acknowledges his wisdom. John 14, 15, uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you love me, you will read and appreciate the literary qualities of the Bible. Not if you love me, you will throw me a bone on social media. Not if you love me, you will agree with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For Saul, a change in what he believes is a change in everything. We know this because we see him baptized into his new belief, this new way of life, pretty much directly. And I'm warning you of this today because our culture has accepted a very low bar when it comes to Jesus. 
where Saul sees the truth and changes his belief, and it impacts everything about his life from there forward, we may hear the truth, believe it, and then go about our merry business. That's not going to work. The truth is, there are some things we just don't want Jesus to change. For some of us, our value and our identity is hinged upon what we do or how people see us or the persona that we've crafted. And if you and I are being honest with each other, and I feel like that's best, you know that the first thing that Jesus is going to do is tear down those idols. And we're too wrapped up in them to let them go. So we agree in our heads, but we're very careful not to let it leak out into our lives. Like I said, that's not going to work. Jesus changes everything, and he will insist upon it. The big question of the day, the question that everything hinges on, is this true? Is Jesus who he says he is? Saul says yes. In doing so, his life is altered forever. And he will eventually be beheaded for that belief. Is Jesus who he says he is? The disciples that followed Jesus and continued his work afterwards all said yes. All of them were also killed for that yes. Except for John, who got away with being boiled in oil and exiled to an island called Patmos. Is Jesus who he says he is. The reality of this truth is not in how these men, including Saul, died for the faith. It's how they lived in that faith. The truth is in the lives of those in this room that have been changed by the grace of God. The truth is in the untold numbers of believers that have served the poor, as Jesus asked. The untold numbers of missionaries taking the story of Jesus to all corners of the earth so that all may share in that hope. The untold number of those living a quiet life in the company of friends and family. A life that preaches a louder and truer gospel than words ever could. Is Jesus who he says he is? Yes. And that changes everything. Let's pray.